and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and light greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and make a, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two small copper po coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so this is, this is the end of Mark 12. You know, next time we're going to be moving into Mark 13, we're going to be getting into the stuff that everybody loves, the eschatology, um, or in some cases, presumed eschatology. Um, but this is the end of chapter 12. And if you'll remember last week's teaching, you're going, oh my gosh, that scribe just honored him and, and all that. And now Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, is totally dissing on them. And you'd be right. But their conversational conventions were different than ours. Now, if you remember two years ago when we talked about polemic and ancient stereotypes in, uh, in, in, in ancient debate, okay? We're going to review that today. And I will link the actual teaching in the transcript. We're also going to place the final nail in the coffin of the second temple, which Yeshua will condemn to destruction at the beginning of chapter 13. And next week, we're actually going to talk about the destruction of the second temple, according to the first century historian Josephus, who was a priest and actually there. And um, we're going to talk, and we'll include some later rabbinic writings, too. Unlike all previous weeks, I am not going to do a review of everything that's happened so far on the Temple Mount. You can all breathe a sigh of relief. And especially me, I don't like reading the same thing over and over and over again. Um... This one doesn't need as much background material. Like last week, Yeshua is on the offensive now. Last week, um, we saw as one lone scribe stepped up and closed out the controversies by asking a genuine question and praising Yeshua's answer. And I need to add something I, I didn't mention last week. This is the only question asked on the Temple Mount that Yeshua straight up answers. He knows the difference between a seeker and an enemy, and he answers accordingly. Uh, as for this widow that we're going to be talking about, Yeshua is praising her. But what she is doing and why will lead directly to next week's proclamation of destruction against the Temple. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon. 
including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it. I call it Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. Um, you can find a link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. Uh, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So let's talk about polemic. Polemic was a very Greek way of speaking to and about one's enemies, but like all speech in honor-shame societies, it had to be performed in front of an audience to be meaningful. The, uh, the woes of Matthew 23 are all intra-Jewish polemic, meaning one group within Judaism laying into another group in an attempt to discredit them and to win converts to, you know, their own way of doing things. That's what polemic was about. Um, they're dangerous and reckless and in error, and let me tell you why. And Yeshua's brand of polemic is so incredibly tame. <laughs> oh my gosh. You would blush to read some of the things that the various Greek philosophical schools said about their opponents. Uh, not really suitable for a Bible program. Let's leave it at that. And the Essenes, they were ruthlessly brutal with their polemic against the Pharisees and the Sadducean high priesthood. Uh, the Romans employed polemic to battle the Christians during the first few centuries and the Jews as well. Really, they applied it to anyone who wasn't adopting a Roman enough identity, which, you know, would cause a lot of problems. Once the Romans stopped persecuting Christians and began to start equating their brand of doctrines and worship styles, you know, with the one true way, and this caused serious rifts with Christians in Africa and in the East. And it's something we still, as heirs of Roman identity politics and um, fueled by polemical rhetoric, we still engage in. Not really realizing where it comes from and how it differs from what Yeshua was doing in battling those who were actively keeping the Jews from turning to him for salvation. You know, we just do it over stupid, debatable stuff that no one's salvation hinges on, although, you know, we pretend like it does. Now, if you would like to read an excellent scholarly article on ancient polemic, try this one. It's called The New Testament's Anti-Jewish Slander and Conventions of Ancient Polemic. It is available through jstor.org. Um... And why didn't I write down the author? Uh, I'll do it in the transcript. I apologize to the author. It's a great article. 
we just toss around insults because we aren't creative or knowledgeable enough to do anything else. You know, with these guys, it was very calculated with specific goals in mind because in an honor-shame society, it was sometimes even a matter of life and death to do this correctly. Families could rise and fall based on polemic, but mostly um, philosophical schools. And as Josephus points out, the various um, Jewish uh, denominations, sects, whatever you want to call them, were philosophical schools. And he called them the four philosophies, the, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But because we don't live this way anymore, thank you, God. And I don't mean that to sound flippant to God. I mean, seriously, thank you, God. You know, we mistake what is happening here for what we do. Uh, uh, so, like I said, we're in uh, Mark chapter 12. We're starting in verse 38. We're going to go through to the end of the chapter. Um, and in his teaching, he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And we'll go through this verse by verse, but it's important to know what has happened here. Yeshua just praised a scribe, but he can't allow this to turn into a praise for all scribes. After all, they're trying to kill him at this point. Not the other guy, not that one guy. And it could be that this scribe was trying to speak for all his compatriots because, you know, after all, he would undoubtedly be wearing his scribe costume. Everyone knew the man who approached Yeshua was a scribe. But the scribes have been opposing him in this gospel, all of them except one. Yeshua cannot allow any honor conferred on this scribe to spread to the group as a whole, and it wouldn't have if, um, and it would have actually if he hadn't taken corrective action through polemic. It's like, okay, guys, this one scribe got it right, but do not listen to the rest of them. They're getting it wrong and are far from the kingdom. And if they do not repent, they will be condemned. I mean, you can just see that wise scribe slinking away at this point because you really were defined by your associations. Verse 38, we're going to go back to the beginning here. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Now, this is a very direct beginning. Nothing veiled here. Beware. But how dangerous can a retainer class, you know, a.k.a. working class civil servant be? If you are asking that, then you've obviously never had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles in California. And no, I'm not kidding either. Okay, maybe just a little bit. But what about these long robes? Okay, scribes wore long white linen robes to set themselves apart as educated professionals, available for hire, and also for the sake of honor. So it's like they were a walking billboard for their profession. Colored garments were for the common people. You can just imagine how long white robes with the long tassels, you know, tzitzit, 
would stand out in a sea of all sorts of colors, most of which would have been muted. We aren't talking about the bright turquoise and red like you see in the Sunday school programs. But, you know, just imagine a crowded Passover and what would happen if someone who looked as pure as the driven snow came through the crowd. People would instinctively move out of his way and would even greet him out of respect. In honor-shame societies, everything was about respect, and although scribes weren't rich, I mean, the fortunate ones were, you know, educated retainers of the rich, but most would probably just be big fish in small ponds. You know, the they were the educated guys in town who could write out contracts and would be most likely to be reading in the synagogue. Just think of how intoxicating this would be, this sort of recognition and admiration from the quote-unquote little people. Yeshua is telling the crowd the exact same thing he's been hammering into the disciples. Beware of ambition. Get rid of it. It's poison and it will lead you to all sorts of evil. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Yeshua says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's Luke 6.26. Not only... Do um, fame and good reputation lead us to seek more of it, but they're fickle. These people who love you today will hate you tomorrow, which, you know, anyone who teaches will, will tell you. So your goal has to be to teach the text and not to be famous or respected. I mean, except for like free good behavior, okay? <laughs> you don't want to be disrespected because of your behavior, your actual behavior. Um, false prophets were well paid and well thought of because they told people in high places what they wanted to hear. And even when it didn't bear any fruit, still, you know, made them feel better. So, you know, palm readers, that's today too, okay? Uh, nowadays, we also have false prophets in that there are a lot of people who don't know the word but teach all sorts of nonsense because they haven't studied. And they often haven't even read the whole Bible. They'll set dates and twist around apocalypses until they would be unrecognizable to the original audiences, or tear down fellow believers just because it draws a certain element who love to watch a slaughter. So, you know, don't tell me that we're any different than the pagans who gathered to watch Christians torn apart in the arena. We just do it with words and reputations now, because they're a little more squeamish. But because these people do not know the scriptures, but love to be identified by these sorts of teachings, and they revel in the adoration it gains, which, you know, actual good teaching, <laughs> you don't get much adoration. <laughs> they would probably get the same kind of warning pinned on them by Yeshua as the first century scribal authorities. It's really amazing, you know, how little changes and how artificially distanced we feel from these rebukes when, you know, we're really very much the same. In any event, as we have just seen previously, and as it is detailed in Matthew 23, the scribes know the Bible, but they do not do it, and they disregard the poor. Not all of them, obviously. They came up with nitpicky rulings that sometimes help expand on the law and sometimes subverted it altogether. That means that people had to be careful and weigh everything they said and not just accept them as unquestioned authorities, which 
you know, no one should ever be. I want to look at the greetings in the marketplace really quick, because a lot is written about that in the extra-biblical literature. Uh, Kiddushin 33a expands on Leviticus 19.32, which commands people to stand in the presence of an elder, and might I add that even though I am now over 50, I have never seen anyone who claims to be Torah-observant follow this command, even though it's easy enough to do unless you're disabled, all right? And, and I'm not saying you have to, but I am just saying that if you want to make the claim, you need to do it. Anyway, <laughs> here's the argument. Just as, and this, again, this is from Kiddushin 33a. Just as reverence does not include neglect of work, so too standing does not include neglect of work. Therefore, one who is engaged in work is not obligated to stand before an elder. And the verse also juxtaposes reverence to standing. Just as standing includes no monetary loss, as standing applies only when it does not entail neglect of work, as explained previously, so too reverence is referring to an action that includes no monetary loss. From here, the sages stated, craftsmen are not permitted to stand before Torah scholars when they are engaged in their work. Um, so unless someone was actually doing work that would cause them loss if they stood up, they were required to stand in the presence of one of the Torah scholars, Torah lawyers, or scribes, which are the various names they go by in the Gospels. The proper addresses were rabbi, father, or master, as we see in Makot 24a. And he who honors those who fear the Lord. This is referring to he who conducts himself like Jehoshaphat, king of Judea, who, when he would see a Torah scholar, would arise from his throne and hug and kiss him and call him, My father, my father, my teacher, my teacher, my master, my master. Of course, Yeshua forbids this type of exaltation among his followers. I'd be really embarrassed if everybody did that to me. Um, we don't see any of the New Testament authors calling themselves anything but slaves, servants, and brothers. Um, there are jobs, but not titles, okay? So although this dates to legendary material published over 500 years after Yeshua, this expresses the expectations of how the scholars expected and demanded to be treated at that time. And we know from Yeshua in Matthew 23, uh, let's see, this is starting in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. I mean, if I went to... <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face. If I went around myself calling... If I went around calling myself Teacher Tyler, I wouldn't be able to do it with a straight face. Yeah, I teach. God has given me a gift for it. He's called me to do it. So, does it mean I need a title? Or does it mean I need to get to work? And for the record, no one is allowed to stand when I go by until I'm at least in my 80s because I don't want to be reminded how old I'm getting. Seriously. <laughs> um, 
uh, chapter 12, verse 39, continuing on. Um, and uh, they want to have the best seats in the house, or sorry, the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay, so scribes would have the best seats in the synagogue because they were literate and they could read and write in Hebrew, which most Jews were unable to do at this point. On the Sabbath, the Torah would be read in Hebrew and then someone would read or recite the Aramaic Targum, which is a paraphrase of the Torah, which everyone could understand, or maybe from the Septuagint Greek manuscripts, which were also common in those days. But they would have the seats closest to the alcove where the Torah scroll was stored. They would be facing the rest of the synagogue attendees. And everyone was to stand when the Torah scroll was being read. So really, these guys are demanding to be treated almost on par with the scroll itself. Yeah, yeah. So places of honor at feast is easy enough to understand, except that it goes further than you would probably suspect. Torah teachers um, slash scribes were to be given precedence in feast seating above elders and even above one's own parents, which puts the desire to be called and considered father and master in more context. And I shouldn't say desire, I should say demand. Okay. Uh, they make long prayers for a pretense. Nothing is said here against long prayers, but the heart and intention behind them is called seriously into question. What I really want to talk about will tie into the story um, of the widow's might, and that is elderly abuse. Devouring houses, I, I did not know this before this, uh, before I studied this, is actually a Greek idiom for conning someone out of money or land. But how would the scribes do this exactly? Now, Ben Witherington III has some interesting theories in his excellent book, the Gospel of Mark, socio-rhetorical commentary. And of course, you know, I mean, I love his, I love all his books. Okay. <laughs> if you say, would you recommend this book by Ben Wither? Yes, I would. I don't even have to hear the title. Now, first, he highlights Malachi 3.5, where Yahweh declares judgment against those who oppress widows should, which should come as no surprise to anyone. Okay, these guys weren't paid for their work in teaching Torah, okay? So they had to make their money in other ways. Some very legitimate, like doing contract work. But they would serve as guardians over the estates of both widows and orphans, and really anyone who was not considered competent or um, who contracted their services. Now remember, these guys went around in long white linen robes, you know, they, they, and making long public prayers. All right. Frankly, it drummed up business. All right. You knew exactly who to go to. They were like, like I said before, like walking billboards. And anyway, I don't care who you are, Jew or Gentile. When you have these sort of situations, you end up with dishonest, dishonest managers bilking their 
vulnerable clients. It's, um, it just, frankly, it's very tempting. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. So, oh, ah, we're almost at the uh, half here. So I'm just gonna, ah, oh, blather on about nonsense. No, no, <laughs> no, I mean, you get, um, in our day and age too, you, you have these, um, you have people who by virtue, you know, I, I wince when I see a Christian fish in the phone book. Do they have phone books anymore or on a website saying this is a Christian business? Cause I always think, Oh, I mean, that for me isn't an advertising point. That for me is troublesome because I, I don't like seeing Christianity be used as a, as a selling point and, and I wonder if they're using it. Anyway, be right back. Rosenquist and welcome back to this week's character and context where we're talking about the rebuke to the scribes and the widow's might and we're taking on the widow's might in just a minute here but we're finishing up with the scribes um and we just we just read that verse and you know Yahweh's very serious about widows being taken advantage of uh let's look at Isaiah 10 verses 1 through 3 Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they make make the fatherless their prey, their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? And we see clearly that these are educated people doing harm through writing, making decrees or defrauding, but it gets labeled as oppression either way. History has proven that religious people don't tend to be inherently trustworthy in financial matters, and it's very tempting to make more than you're owed when doing such work. And easy as well, because people don't watch you as closely. I mean, gosh, in my own life and in my own sphere, I've seen pastors and apostles and whatever getting away with murder financially. And the supporters just demand no accountability. And that's not just when I was a mainstream Christian either. That's that's in the Hebrew Roots Movement and Messianic Judaism too. It doesn't change with the denomination. Um, no one wants to admit to following someone who takes advantage of widows, the elderly, whatever, even if they have to pretend like nothing happened. Um, we just can't give anyone except for Yahweh that kind of devotion and, and trust. Everyone needs accountability. So yeah, they get greater condemnation because they posed as Bible experts and painted themselves as being super righteous and took advantage of it for financial gains. Their condemnation will be greater as well. 
Um, and, 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 and I believe also the condemnation will be greater for those who turn a blind eye and refuse to hear uh, the cries of the widows. I mean, seriously, how many times does this have to happen? Interestingly, the whole concept of elder abuse and widow abuse lead right into this next bit. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. This is worded strangely. So the treasury, the Beit Otsrot, was a very large building on the southwestern corner of the original Temple Mount platform, which had been greatly expanded during Hasmonean and Herodian times. Now, my temple teacher, Joseph Good, has identified this same, this is the same location as Solomon's House of the Forest of Lebanon. As he is greatly respected by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, I'm not just floating wild theories from people who aren't experts, and I'm certainly not making it up myself. Um, when I do that, they are my theories, and I freely admit that they're neither expert opinions, nor am I an expert. I just play one on the radio. Not very well. <laughs> now, to be opposite the treasury would not put the boxes in the same place as the Mishnah places them. Unless, of course, there were also different boxes in different locations, and perhaps there was a box outside to allow Gentiles to donate. I admit that I don't know. Anyway, Tractate Shekelim 6.5 says that there were 13 trumpet-shaped boxes within the courtyard of the women, which you couldn't even see Beethoven's throat from, okay? And these boxes allowed anyone to donate to the various functions of the temple, from the temple tax, uh, which every male had to pay yearly and which paid for the sacrifices to buying gold plating, for the walls of the sanctuary. You could donate to supply frankincense or animals or whatever your choice, hence the wealthy people putting in large sums. I will say that this gospel account was written at least 150 years before Shekelim. Okay? So, I would put more faith in the accuracy of the gospel account. Uh, okay, verse 42. Uh, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. I have told you previously about how the temple had come to be seen as a national shrine and a matter of pride. And there was very much a feeling of ownership about it. Now, this widow was not paying the temple tax, which would have been two drachmas. This was far less. Two drachmas was like two days wages, and the two lepta, which is another Latin loan word, that make up the penny or quadron was worth less than ten minutes wage. If that doesn't tell you how minuscule this was, then I don't know what would. And yet, she was making a voluntary donation to the running slash beautification of the temple. So, don't make the mistake of thinking that she's donating to the poor or that any of them were. This was about the temple itself. And people felt so passionately about it and identified so personally and religiously with it so much that 
This widow would give up all she had to live on just to be a part of that. And this is part of the problem. This, combined with the fact that Herod the Great and his posterity had and were building and improving it with tax money from these Jews, the majority of which were barely staying afloat and had already sold their land to absentee landlords, many of whom were among the chief priests, you know, you begin to see how corrupt and oppressive the temple system had become and how it hid behind the aura of glorifying God. But you can't glorify God by oppressing and taking advantage of the poor, even the willing poor. Compare this to how the tabernacle was originally constructed. Out of materials and monies looted from Egypt. Out of absolutely everyone's surplus. But there was nothing glorious about what was happening here. Verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And yet, here's Yeshua still praising her. Just like he praised that scribe before ripping into the institution in general. Or, or not the institution, but what they as a group were, were doing. Now he does this time and time again to turn their perceptions of the world and the kingdom upside down. Less is sometimes more. The least will be the greatest. The greatest will serve everyone. The woman who chooses to be a student upending first century gender expectations has chosen the better thing. Those who battle the empires of the world with the testimony of Yeshua in Revelation are great, while those who live by the sword will perish by it, as Yeshua said after Peter got violent, all right? Blessed are the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the persecuted. Love and pray for those who are your enemies. Whenever he was asked to make a ruling about sin, he pretty much refused to do anything except to remind people of God's intentions in the beginning, not the allowances that Moses made because of our hardened hearts. How many times did he prepare them to see that the people who seem to have the least to offer sometimes do more than anyone else. And isn't it just, you know, it isn't just a lesson for them, but for us. How often are we dazzled by the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, and the anointed, <laughs> and totally miss those who are truly doing greater things for the kingdom? Probably 99% of the time. And that's exactly why these sort of people get away with so much for so long. We are distracted by worldly standards of greatness and excellence. It's like people who are, and I, I'm speaking from experience here as a former church soloist, people who have musical ability, especially singers. Oh man, we can get away with more than anybody can. Um, we want to ooh and ah, because, you know, don't mess with people's entertainment. We want to ooh and ah at the people with the long white robes and the long tassels and the fancy titles when, frankly, if they're just doing their jobs, they wouldn't need a title because it'd be obvious what they were. And we ignore the true workhorses out there laboring away as foster parents and feeding the poor. That's us. Oh, look, something shiny. Okay. But Yeshua, he gives them a reality check of how God sees these things from the vantage point of the kingdom. 
Verse 44, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Who cares what they did? Ain't none of them going hungry tonight. But she will. She'll go hungry unless she has something at home to prepare, and maybe she doesn't. And because that's all she has to live on? Guess what? No sons either, or she wouldn't have had to worry about her own living. This woman is destitute in more ways than one. In a way, she's a picture of Yeshua as well. He will give more than anyone else can give. His life. That she did it out of a misplaced devotion doesn't negate the lesson. Makes it all the more tragic. The disciples are still dazzled and enamored with their temple, their national treasure. And next week, when we move into chapter 13, they're going to go all gaga over the gorgeous buildings and stones, and Yeshua is going to tell them that it will all be destroyed, and very soon at that. The temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap, and it has been replaced by Yeshua. Still, it might have been allowed to continue standing had it not been for the corruption and the failure of the Jerusalem elites to recognize the living temple in their midst, instead of snubbing him and plotting against his life. Temples in the ancient world existed for the purpose of, one, caring for the God, but Yahweh doesn't need to be cared for like the false gods who needed to be fed, bathed, anointed with perfume oils, clothed, and put to bed at night. Two, the temple is the house for the idol that was believed to be imbued with the essence of the God in question so that all the things I mentioned in the first purpose could be fulfilled. And three, Temples allowed two-way mediation between God and man. The priests did that in all cultures. They presented offerings and served as the go-between between heaven and earth. They made sure that there was order in the cosmos and the gods were happy and that everything operated smoothly. If there was a revelation from the God, they, they made sure to deliver it. But Yeshua became that temple. In effect, Yeshua was the idol with Yahweh's essence in it. It had come down to earth. So are we once we've been filled with the Spirit, because we become houses containing the living God through his Spirit. Images, okay? That's what it means to be an image bearer, okay? Icons. Certainly not pure receptacles like Yeshua, where no sin gets in the way and he heard perfectly, and he discerns everything from the Father because he is the Word. Uh, and you can't separate the Word from the Father. And, you know, not in an idolatrous way, but this is how the first century believers would have understood it. It's about functionality. We are living stones of Yahweh's temple, which is Yeshua. Because whenever there is a believer, there is a small overlap of heaven and earth, where Yahweh can act through us to bring love, stability, and mercy to the earth. That is, you know, when we aren't acting like total goober heads. So, I'll tell you, I studied the temple for quite a few years, and at one point I wanted it rebuilt, but not anymore. Yeshua is my temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. I am a stone in that temple. 
He provides me with all the mediation and forgiveness I need. He is not lacking in any way that he needs to be supplemented with anything built by human hands. And Yahweh commanded the building of the tabernacle. David was provided with the Tavnit, the blueprint of the first temple in writing from the Spirit. Haggai was commanded to rebuild after the return from exile, and they were cursed with famine until they complied. In the absence of Yeshua, the temple provided a picture of the greater temple to come. Do you remember Yeshua saying something greater than the temple is here in Matthew twelve six? Why would we build something inferior to that there have been no commandments to rebuild? Nowhere. Not once, okay? And frankly, if Yeshua wanted it rebuilt, or if Yahweh wanted it rebuilt, excuse me, a red heifer would make it three years without disqualification, and it never has. Not in 2,000 years. I think we need to take a hint. If the temple were rebuilt, it would be a step backward and away from Yeshua. And I say this as a Torah teacher and someone who enjoys studying about the temple, but Yeshua is greater than both. He's God's final word, God's decisive salvific action on behalf of community. Just as the Yom Kippur sacrifice was not accepted, for the final 40 years the temple stood, according to the Talmud, um, it still won't be if it's rebuilt. And I'll tell you something about Americans and American revelation beliefs and, and how they skew our beliefs in this area. People have it in their heads that the temple must be rebuilt to usher in the Great Tribulation and the return of Yeshua, but that is a very modern belief. One that has really damaged our Middle Eastern foreign policies and it's hurt real people, including many Christians who live in the Middle East, who were born in the Middle East, who are Middle Easterners. The whole idea behind pushing for the rebuilding of the temple artificially moving up God's sovereign timeline of when Yeshua returns. You know, as taught in this in this evangelical dispensationalism, it's arrogant and it's disruptive. You know, it's not disruptive here, but it's disruptive there. And I tell you, if we would only put as much prayers and money and time into missions as we do into trying to see another temple built, Yeshua would already be here and reigning over all the earth. It isn't about a date. It's about the, the kingdom. All right. But, you know, we think we can find shortcuts instead of making sure he is being worshipped by people from every nation, tribe and tongue. We can't shortcut Yahweh's sovereign timing. All we can do is to either neglect or do what we're commanded to do. All right. And so next week, Yeshua is going to climax this whole two-chapter arc where he's been condemning the temple and the elites who run it and put their trust in it by formally condemning the temple itself and announcing its destruction. Or pronouncing it, really. And, and you know, he does this in our lives, too. If we're committed to him and the changes brought on through the new creation. When people ask me the difference between, like, a true and false convert, I tell them to look for radical changes in a person's life, inside and out. You know, Yahweh's very jealous of us 
but not often in the ways we assume. Not in the nitpicky sort of pronouncing the name properly and understanding the difference between justification and sanctification, but in being incredibly jealous of the ways that we are committed to being unlike him, divided from him by whatever idols are in our lives. And the temple and people's trust in it, getting back to the subject here, was a big problem. A problem that blinded them to the abuses and the oppression that was tied to it. Not just because the high priestly family was collaborating with Rome, getting wealthy and snatching up land of poor farmers as they went under, but because it was being, it was built on the backs of the horrifyingly poor populace. I mean, it wasn't Herod paying for that out of his own pocket. He got the money from demanding tribute from the Jews. It was a monument, not to Yahweh, but to Herod's attempt to buy the approval of the Jewish people, who always considered him to be an outsider and, frankly, a half-breed. He was only marginally Jewish anyway. He murdered multiple family members, including his favorite wife, and two of his sons that I can think of offhand. He was one of the most brilliant architects who has ever lived. And the temple in Jerusalem was reported to be the most stunning building on earth. And it was the nation's pride and joy. Because they had lost sight of the fact that you cannot honor Yahweh by oppressing the vulnerable. Which is actually what Solomon ended up doing too. Let's look at Jeremiah 7. Starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say... Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. It seems that Israel really, you know, well, all of us, okay, we cycle through this same thing again and again, but we tend to choose new ways to commit the same old sins. Yahweh desires mercy and not sacrifice, and they had completely lost sight of why the sacrificial system existed. That's why Yeshua kept bringing people back to their creational purposes, to worship Yahweh and love one another. Sacrifices emerged from a breakdown of that creational purpose. Uh, and I'm talking about sin sacrifices, okay, and uh, asham, that kind of thing. They would break faith in some way with Yahweh and would need to offer up blood. And I know that there were often also sacrifices that were not sin-related, but right now I'm talking about the den of robbers. Okay? Committing crimes and sins and then running back to the temple to make a sacrifice, um, or performing the sacrifices as the priest, uh, committing crime, you know, it, considering themselves right with Yahweh. But that's not mercy, that's presumption. That's putting faith in a ritual. It's treating Yahweh like a child, 
frankly. It's like, well, you wrote this, so you have to accept it, okay? It's like my remembering Matthew's birthday, but forgetting Andrew's, even though they're twins. <laughs> That'd be bad. And my trying to make it up to Andrew sometime during the next week with a present. The relationship has been violated. I can't just shrug and give him a present and expect him to be okay with my blatant favoritism. In the same way, those coming... And Matthew wouldn't be cool with that either. <laughs> twins are very concerned with justice, all right? Um, in the same way, those coming to the temple needed to see it as a place to approach God, not to ritually sacrifice their way into God's favor because he's clear all throughout the Bible that it just doesn't work that way. So, anyway, oh, what a mess. So next week we will be talking about the Jewish revolt against Rome that took place between 66 and 70 of the Common Era, and the ensuing destruction of both the temple and the inner city of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about how devastating that was to the Jewish people, because, um, as I've said, they lived in a temple-centered society. And it didn't matter... Um, if they were in Judea or in Galilee or in the Transjordan or whatever, their lives in one way or the other centered around the Jerusalem temple and the prayers that were being offered there and the daily Tamid offerings, the uh, festival sacrifices, uh, the festivals themselves. Although by that time, many people were only going to Passover. Um, just because of the great poverty of the times. But, um, yeah, it's, huh, it had become a mess. Anyway, um, I'll see you next week.